0: Today, millions of Americans engage in civil disobedience as governors continue to rule by diktat. We take a critical look at the murder of Amud Arbury. The Tara Reid allegations reveal that wokeness requires hypocrisy, and a big announcement about the podcast. I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome to the 180cast. Welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host Georgie Borman. It has been a very long month. Has it not? But in between all of the, the hundreds of news articles that I've read and the video clips and press conferences that I've been watching, I've been thinking long and hard about the the future of the 180 cast. And it's a bittersweet moment, but This is actually going to be the last episode of the breakdown side of this podcast. Not the whole podcast, okay? The 180 cast is going to continue. But yeah, the interviews are going to continue every other week as they have been. But after a while, um, I just realized it would be better for you as the listener and for all future listeners to leave the 180 project how it was originally meant to be and to let the commentary and analysis that I love to do and that I'm very passionate about um, sort of be its own thing, be its own podcast, and thrive out, you know, doing its own thing in a different trajectory. So it's tentatively going to be called The Breakdown with Georgie Borman. So very similar to what I've been doing here on this podcast, but I am going to do my best to do it actually every single week And it will follow the format of these breakdowns more or less with expanded flexibility to interview guests on a more topical basis instead of just interviewing people about changing their minds Um, and to bring on guests to to co-host on occasion. I would love to do that. I think that that would be so much fun for me and for you as a listener. And just to generally provide more value to the listener as chiefly a political commentary podcast instead of being sort of penned into the theme of changing your mind. As much as I love that, again, the 180 cast, the 180 project of exploring how people change their minds is going to continue. Um, But this podcast, The Breakdown with Georgie Borwin, is going to be about bringing, as I've said before, uh, moral and logical clarity to a confusing world and confusing times there will be lots of debunking, lots of exposing sides of the issues that are undercovered by the media, and a lot of uh, moral exposition on key issues as well from a Christian conservative point of view. So I, I love the 180 cast. Again, I believe in its mission of exploring how people change their minds and stimulating reasonable, charitable, empathetic dialogue between opposing sides. But that's kind of why I want to let the breakdowns be its own thing so that the 180 cast can continue to serve its original mission in a little bit less of a partisan way. I know that there are a lot of people who listen to the breakdowns and don't listen to the interviews and vice versa, and I think that that's a pretty good indication that they need to grow along their own separate trajectory. With that said, We'll go ahead with the final breakdown session here on the 180 cast. I have packed it with valuable information and what I think is good insight. So let's go ahead and get into the top stories. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about. It will top the list. Reports are surfacing that an African-American man was gunned down in cold blood On the street in Georgia in February, Ahmaud Arbery was out for a jog, according to his family, when a former cop and his son were on the lookout, supposedly, in the neighborhood outside of Brunswick in Georgia, uh, where some break-ins had recently been reported. So here's what happened If you are sensitive to violence, you might want to skip forward a few minutes past this story, but it is important to talk about. Here's what happened. So these guys, the McMichaels, father and son, they saw this guy, quote unquote, hauling ass down the road as they described it because they had just break-ins in the neighborhood, right? So they hear about this guy hauling ass down the road. They jumped in their truck and tried to cut him off on the road. But when they were unsuccessful, they yelled, allegedly, Stop! We want to talk to you! And by their report, Arbury, who's 25, attacked the son, whose name is Travis, and Travis allegedly defended himself by firing a shot from a 357 Magnum. And then there was another shot. A third part party apparently was with them, named Roddy, and he was the one who caught the footage of the homicide. Here's the audio. It's, it's very chilling. You're, you're going to hear three gunshots, one presumably from uh, the rifle, Travis's, and uh, another two from a shotgun, from what I can gather from the police report. Take a listen. Just a couple seconds after you hear the third shot, you can uh, see this man. He's in a a white t-shirt and what looks to be like jogging shorts. And he sort of puts his hand to his stomach. He keels over and he, he falls down onto the cement face first. There is no other way to describe what happened other than murder. Let's just get that out here right now. So the reason that these guys weren't charged back in February was because it was supposedly a citizen's arrest. You're allowed to do a citizen's arrest in Georgia, provided that you that you have either seen the crime, what happened directly, or the suspect is um, fleeing the scene and you have a strong suspicion that that person committed a crime. So... Once they get to this guy in their truck, they're saying, the father and son are saying that Arbery attacked Travis rather than what is pretty clear from the footage, which is Arbery grabbed the gun from this guy, Travis, because this pickup truck with a guy literally in the bed of the truck holding a shotgun, came and tried to corral this guy and block the road and corral him in with this other guy in the other truck named Roddy like he's some sort of animal because, oh, they're just they're just darn sure that this guy's a, a burglar. Was he armed? No. That's usually the excuse, right? Isn't it? Oh, I saw him reach for a weapon. Wasn't armed. He was jogging. In fact, you can actually tell Near the beginning of the video, you get probably a good second and a half, like three, three and a half paces of Arbery jogging down the road. And it is clearly a jogger's pace. It is not the pace of somebody who is booking it running from the authorities because they don't want to get caught um, for a break in. There is nothing about the evidence at hand that suggests that this was anything other than a cold blooded murder. So David Harsani, who's a senior writer over at uh, National Review, tweeted, If strangers approach you with a gun, you have every right to protect yourself. They're the ones menacing him. Ahmoud Arberry would have had more cause to shoot than the reverse. I think that's exactly right. And then Ala pundit writing for Hot Air. I'll just read what he said. I think it's very succinct and very helpful. He wrote, McMichael would say that he was just protecting his son as a suspected burglar made a move to grab his son's weapon. Because one of these shots, or one or two of these shots came from the shotgun from the father who's in the bed of the truck. Arbery would say that his life was being threatened by a group of men and he defended himself by trying to disarm them. It's clearly what it looks like from the video. Maybe he was a burglar who was trying to get away or maybe he was just a black man out for a jog and terrified that he'd run into a group of the wrong white men on the wrong day. He continues, "Here's the point, it doesn't matter. There's no reason why the McMichaels should have confronted Arbury even if he's guilty of everything they suspect him of. They're not cops. They didn't personally witness him commit any crime." The risk that they would misidentify an innocent man as a criminal was perfectly foreseeable, especially to a former cop like McMichael. They should have called the sheriff, who could have stopped Arbery lawfully and used the surveillance video mentioned in the police report to determine if he was really the burglary suspect they're looking for. Why didn't they do that? If they can get away with this, then the citizen's arrest statute is licensed for legalized vigilantism. Indict them. Absolutely. Case closed. There's no reason to argue this further as something that has any wiggle room for this father and son not to be charged with murder. Absolutely none at all. Moving on to a slightly less grim story here. Did you know that your beer and or soda, including that sparkling flavored sparkling water that is delicious that I'm addicted to right now, is either going to be flat or not available. According to the Seattle Times, and several other sources I checked with. Why? Because they are running out of carbon dioxide, which of course makes the bubbles in your soda and in your beer. CO2 is a byproduct of ethanol, but the steep drop in demand for gasoline means that less ethanol is being made because these uh, soda companies and... um, These brewers are buying the carbon dioxide as a byproduct from this other process, which is very efficient and probably cheaper than whatever other method is being used to capture or make CO2, right? So steep drop in demand, obviously, that means less ethanol is being made. I think in the United States, we have about 10% ethanol in our gasoline, for better or for worse. Hmm. and so this means that uh, in, in short order here, I, I hope not, hopefully the crisis will be averted by some wise policy decisions. Uh, but in short order here, you're not going to be able to get beer or soda, or I guess it would be flat. I don't know why you would sell somebody flat soda, but that's what's happening. Supply chains are, are very fragile. Much more fragile than people were assuring us at the beginning. That's for sure. And the meat industry, by the way, is also affected because CO2 is used in processing, packing, preserving, and shipping, according to the World Economic Forum. We are already, of course, seeing serious problems um, with the meat industry. There's uh, not enough capacity for for packaging it. Not enough capacity for 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 processing it, both because of outbreaks and because people um, have left work for fear of getting infected. Sometimes a a very uh, real and and present danger at some of these um, plants that have had major outbreaks where people are working shoulder to shoulder. The the locker rooms are very cramped and, and crowded and things like that. So the meat industry was already having problems. Now we have the CO2 stuff on top of that. There are actually some Wendy's locations in California that have already stopped selling burgers. That is how bad it is getting, okay? When people tell you the supply chain is fine because all of the essential businesses are continuing to operate, they are just placating you so you don't panic. Either that or they're really ignorant. In the US, 75% of all ethanol production plants have shut down or cut production, which of course has led to this major supply issue. Production could reach a more than 70% shortfall next month, meaning this month, because this article was written in late April. Boy, okay. Yeah, the bottom line is all of this should have us reflecting on the fact that when governments make the decision that certain businesses are essential on their face, right, and others aren't, it was more or less arbitrary and it's made at face value, right, right, Oh, food is essential, duh. Well, we gotta keep grocery stores open. Um, we'll keep restaurants open because we gotta keep the public placated. We gotta, you know, you gotta have some some basic supplies so we'll keep the the home improvement stores open, stuff like that, in case you spring a leak. All of these things are just just facially. They're like, okay, food industry, beverage industry, you gotta stay open. Anybody who makes food and basic supplies you get to stay open. or if you're a superstore, you get to stay open. or if you're in trucking, okay? But it's much more delicate than that. These decisions were made evidently with complete disregard for the high degree of interdependence between seemingly essential businesses and seemingly non-essential businesses. The severe drop in demand for oil means ethanol plants have less pro- have less to process means less byproduct to sell to the beverage companies, means fewer sodas and beers in your grocery store aisles. Keep that in mind. The supply chain is not fine. Every day this gets worse. Every day this gets worse. Yes, part of that is directly because of the virus, directly because of outbreaks at plants. Absolutely. But we have also made this so much worse with the federal policies that make it much more appealing as somebody who works in a packing plant to simply leave and collect unemployment, which would pay something comparable or even more to what you were making at that packing plant. Some of these people are making right around $15 an hour. Guess what? The $600 that you're supposed to get from the federal government... That's $15 an hour in itself, not including your state unemployment benefits, okay? This is a serious problem. It is only going to be exacerbated by the way that the federal government has handled this. Okay, before we get into a tiny bit of good news, I do want to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by the good folks over at MyPillow. Psychological research indicates people in crisis hit a brick wall of exhaustion right around seven to eight weeks, and that is just about where we are at. So do yourself a favor and get a good night's sleep to recharge yourself for the challenges of the days and weeks ahead, because we are... Not out of the woods, not even by a long shot. Mike Lindell, the inventor and CEO of MyPillow, wants you to have an amazing night's sleep. And the great news for you is that as much as you might want to go to the store to get one, just to get a break from the monotony of staying at home all the time and staring at exactly the same four walls, you you can still get one on MyPillow.com. Just... Go to MyPillow.com and take a little teeny tiny quiz that tells you exactly what level of filling that you need for your light and fluffy and non-sweaty MyPillow for a completely pain-free and deep night's sleep. So if the totalitarian regime in your state will not let you go to the store, just go to MyPillow.com. You can get great discounts on all MyPillow products on MyPillow.com by clicking on the listeners specials. You can get really deep discounts on MyPillow's mattress toppers, bed sheets, pillowcases, even towels, and a lot more. Even the dog beds have a 10-year warranty. And for 180 casters like yourself, Mike is offering the buy one, get one free for the standard MyPillow plus free shipping. A great deal. MyPillow products, as I said, do come with a 10-year warranty, so your kids might literally be moved out of the house before this warranty expires. And then you'll then you'll really get some good sleep, right? Am I right? Yeah. My pillow is also extending their 60 day amount, 60 day money back guarantee. So orders placed between now and the end of May will have their 60 day money back guarantee extended through August 1st, 2020. Go to mypillow.com and click on the radio listener specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza sheets as well. That's soft, breathable Egyptian cotton plus free shipping. Enter promo code 180CAST. That's 180CAST or call 800 506 2641 for these awesome specials. 800 506 2641. Use promo code 180CAST and let them know we sent you. Thank you once again to mypillow for sponsoring the show. Okay, moving on. Okay, a tiny, little, tiny inkling, little tiny, little tiny bit of probable good news. Looking at Georgia, of course, we talked about Georgia on the last breakdown session two weeks ago. No case spike or no sustained case spike two weeks after their reopen, right? Remember, they opened barber shops and bowling alleys and gyms and some other things that people thought oh no no this is so bad people are working you know people are so close to one another close to clients close to other people who are working there this is this is bad and you know people like Stacey Abrams were saying this is going to be so terrible we're going to cause such a huge spike and we're going to lose all of our progress well it doesn't appear to be the case yet I think we're going to know more and no more definitively in probably another week um because two weeks is basically like max incubation period for covid-19 and then you allow another week on top of that for uh reporting to to be gathered and then you you're going to have a really good idea but anyway it does appear that the curve is continuing to bend downward from a peak of 923 down to 137 on May 3rd now it could be that 137 grows into 400 or something like that but you know as more reporting comes in but the the hysteria and the predictions of doom because barber shops are being opened does not seem to be bearing out now I could eat my words I could maybe Governor Brian Kemp made a huge Mistake with this? Maybe it was too early because he did move pretty early. Okay, so I mean they, he was trending down, but it wasn't like it was you know Washington State where we've been on a downward trend for over a month, or Oregon that's been on a downward trend for over a month. You know, like you know he 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 started things pretty pretty quickly. It was it was ambitious. So we're gonna see, and uh, I'll update you next week on where Georgia is at. Or better yet, if you are in Georgia, I want to know what the news situation is like down there, what people are talking about, whether they are, you know, scared to go out, et cetera, et cetera. Because I did look at the mobility data and um, it only seems to have ticked up just a tiny little bit. So even though more things are open, uh, more recreational and, and retail options are open to consumers, people still seem to be very, very, very cautious And staying at home, maybe because they think everybody else is going out and everybody else is going to cause this giant infection and they don't want to go out and uh, catch something that they think maybe they now have a much greater probability of catching. Something like that. But I want to hear your thoughts if you live in Georgia. uh, 323-999-1802. Moving on. (sighs) Okay. Gosh, this really, this really ticks me off. Governor Jay Inslee has announced... That with very minor adjustments to certain industries, we're going to remain in lockdown until at least June 1st. But even though we're in lockdown, we're still going to call it phase one somehow. Because we don't want to be left out of the party with all of the other states that are entering phase one. Take a listen. And we have to make decisions based on hard-headed data and science and not wishes when it comes to life itself. So hard-headed data, even though, like I said, Washington has been trending downward since late March, very definitively, and, and most counties do not have a major problem with this. Really, you've got about four counties that uh, have been hit hardest, and the, the rest of us are pretty, we're okay. I mean, there there have only been two deaths in my county. In the last three days, there have been no reported cases. Most of our counties are fine. But no, no, no. Jay Inslee's going to drag all of us together, right? Because we're all in this together, aren't we? So there's going to be three weeks in between phases. Because hard-headed data means that we need three weeks in between phases. No matter how good the curve looks. With no gatherings over five people. No gatherings over five people until phase three. And then... Weirdly, it jumps to 50 people, but it's still strongly advised that everyone stay home. And in all phases, according to Governor Inslee's plan, all phases, you should practice social distancing and stay, and I quote, at least 6 feet apart from other individuals. This is This is unbelievable. There's no reason that Washington state needs to be this cautious. This coronavirus, according to the best data that we have, is barely more deadly than the flu. And in fact, to date, we have comparable numbers um, from the CDC. Of course, there's a lag time with the CDC, but there's there's a lag time with both numbers. We've got comparable numbers of COVID-19 cases and pneumonia cases. Not both of them together because sometimes some people, some people die with COVID-19 and pneumonia together. But we've got over 49,000 pneumonia deaths and we've got roughly the same reported to the CDC. Last time I checked a couple of days ago. So they've both got reporting labs, uh, lags, but they're, they're pretty comparable. Do you hear anybody talking about that? Anybody Except Kevin McCullough. Kevin McCullough is talking about that. So credit to him. But virtually nobody else. Oh, and also Todd Herman. But virtually nobody else besides some, some Savvy Talk radio hosts are talking about the fact that pneumonia seems to be pretty deadly and uh, nobody's sending kids home from school or keeping you from visiting grandma because of pneumonia it's a virus. This virus is going to be endemic. We are not going to have a vaccine anytime soon. It is very hard to make vaccines for coronaviruses. And there's more than one strain now, which may set back the process of making the vaccine months, who knows, maybe years. Oh, but don't worry. Don't worry. This is all science and data driven, right? All of this treatment of COVID-19 deaths as if they're 20 or a hundred times worse than any other kind of death by from any other virus or any other bacterial infection or anything else that's infect, infectious it's so much worse than that this is all driven by hard-headed data and science i'm going to make decisions not based on negotiation but based on facts and science and data and risk we are uh, moving forward in Oregon based on science and based on data. and uh, Beginning to reopen sectors of our economy that are low risk, but do it in a thoughtful and judicious way. Again, not on the basis of pressure, uh, but on the basis of data, on the basis of science. And we have to make decisions based on hard-headed data and science and not wishes when it comes to life itself. Yeah, I've got a nice little mix of Gavin Newsom there, a little little Kate Brown, little Gretchen Whitmer, data science. Don't worry, guys. It's all driven by the data and the science. Because as long as you say it's data and science driven with a capital D and a capital S, you don't have to be questioned on anything at all, ever, even as you ruin people's lives and businesses. They all say the same thing. It's like they've been programmed. Okay, and I'm not literally saying they've been programmed, okay? I am not a conspiracy theorist. Take off your tinfoil hat. But isn't it interesting how they are all parroting exactly the same lines as if that is exactly the right piece of propaganda that's going to get you to bend the knee, kiss the ring, stay home. Data and science. Oh, as long as it's data and science. Look, there is such a thing as bad data and data that is used the wrong way. And there is such a thing as bad science. The IHME model from the University of Washington is a good example of that. In the past, it's been wrong like 70% of the time. And of course, now it's claiming to take into account the fact that some of these states are opening up and it's now predicting 135,000 deaths because some states are relaxing their restrictions. Okay, the IA IH- IHME model is not reliable. It has not been reliable in the past. There's no reason to trust it now. It's bad science. Not just because it's been wrong like every step of the way about the actual numbers that come out officially from the states, but even if you compare it to, um, you know, because it says it takes into account the fact that there are social, social distancing measures and now it's taking into account the fact that some of those are being relaxed, the the contact tracing studies that tell us about how COVID is transmitted, they say that it's done in close, crowded situations, poorly ventilated spaces, extended personal contact, mainly among family members of the same household, and that it is not transmitted by casual contact with a clerk at the grocery store or by touching a piece of fabric when you're going shopping for some you know, a a new sweater, you know, these are not the ways that COVID is being spread. It is not being spread by casual contact. It is being spread by close personal contact, extended personal contact, being cramped in tight, poorly ventilated spaces where those droplets are hanging in the air for uh, much longer periods of time. Uh, It's being transmitted in mass transit where you've got thousands and thousands of people that are touching exactly the same surfaces every day. You, you know, like the poles in the middle, the, the seats, everything, the windows, all of that. Those are the situations where, where this is being transmitted. When governors say that they want to open up the economy and open up businesses, they are doing so, generally speaking, in situations that are extremely low risk. But I'm supposed to believe, having seen some of this data, I'm supposed to believe that the IHME model is getting this right and now predicting 135,000 deaths. Give me a break. I'll give another example, okay? You can have good data that is helpful, but is used practically for something it shouldn't be used for. For instance... A lot of officials and journalists focus on the quote-unquote skyrocketing positive case counts. Oh no! Positive cases? Whatever will we do? Well, this information in itself doesn't actually help us formulate policy, believe it or not. What we need to know is not just how many people are testing positive... What we need to know is how many of those positive cases develop into critical illnesses that need to be hospitalized, and how many of those critical illnesses, whether or not they are hospitalized, turn into deaths. In reality, because testing was slow to ramp up, very slow in the U.S., we really stumbled out of the gate on that one, more cases are actually backloaded. Meaning more cases have been tested more recently, reported more recently because testing has ramped up than otherwise would have. Well, what does that mean? That means that it takes longer for that downward curve to show up, right? When we're talking about case numbers, it's not a great indicator for policy decisions. What is a good indicator, generally speaking, although, I mean, you can debate this because there's only so much you can do to actually control how many people get hospitalized, and how many people die, you got to control you know, things that you have control over. Personal protective equipment, you can make decisions about that. You can make decisions about hospital capacity. Concrete steps need to be taken along those lines. But in any case, the case counts, it might tell you whether a curve is sloping down or not, but it's not the best indicator for policy decisions. Here's another example. And and when I say it's not the best indicator for policy decisions, like when I was talking about Georgia, we can't use uh, mortality yet. And we can't use hospitalizations yet because it's too early to see those show up in the numbers. So in that case, cases are the best indication that we have whether or not COVID is spreading. But ultimately, what really matters is the hospitalizations and the deaths. But in any case, here's here's another example. Okay, so bad science, bad data. Reporters are making much ado about the, the researchers who are testing various environments to see whether they can find traces of COVID-19, right? They find these, what is reported in the articles, as particles or fragments of viral RNA, the genetic material inside viruses. So they're finding these in various places from grocery stores to um, even outdoor places where large crowds are are passing through in, uh, you know, buses, things like that. Particles. Finding traces of COVID-19. Oh no! You can get COVID while outside? Quick! Shut down the rest of the parks! Stay home! Lock your doors! No! No. Finding remnants of a virus is not the same thing as finding a live virus much less a viral load that is likely to infect you and cause you to develop symptoms. This is good science, right? It's good to be testing where traces of COVID-19 show up. But people who don't understand the science, a.k.a. most government officials, can draw bad conclusions from it, and also journalists. They can draw bad conclusions from it, mislead the public, and make bad policy decisions. You can't just say science and data and say that that excuses whatever decisions you make because you can just pull some numbers out of your rear end. It matters how the data is collected, when it's reported, whether or not it has um, concrete implications for what you have to do going forward, like hospitalizations and whether or not you're going to exceed capacity. All of those things matter. Think critically critically. When somebody tells you they're following the science and data, do not take their word for it. You can see most of these numbers for yourself. Make up your own mind. But of course, Inslee and so many other Democrat governors are acting like the choice is just between following the science and data and like pulling policy decisions out of their rear ends or rolling the dice or just wishing Governors who are opening, like Kemp in Georgia, or governors who have stayed open, like Christy Noam in South Dakota, they're not rolling the dice. They are looking at the indicators that matter. They are looking at those deaths. They're looking at those hospitalizations. They're looking at things on a county-by-county basis, identifying where the hotspots are, sending resources there. And they stuck with the original goal of not overwhelming the healthcare system instead of moving the goalposts to quote, stopping the virus or keeping rates low, quote, until there's a vaccine. The goalposts have moved. So even when they say science and data and look at how many people are getting COVID and the, the rate of COVID or the, you know, the number of cases is growing every day. Well, duh, of course, the number of cases is growing every day. As long as COVID-19 is still around, the, the cases are going to grow every single day, right? That's data. It's not particularly useful. And then, of course, we have, you know, speaking of moving the goalposts, we've got Oregon Governor Kate Brown extending her state of emergency until July 6th. But, but, she said in her press conference, intimated strongly that some counties with zero cases can, she's hopeful, reopen by May 15th. Take a listen. It is my hope that some counties or regions could have the ability to begin the process of reopening as soon as May 15th. The governor didn't say which counties or regions, but I checked and found 12 counties that had five or fewer cases and no deaths, a third of the counties in the state. I want to be clear that we will not be able to open Oregon quickly or in one fell swoop. That's coin six news in Oregon. Wow. All of those counties, a dozen counties with five or fewer cases and no deaths. But oh, we gotta take this really slow, guys. We gotta take this really slow. Oregon is one of the least affected states out of all of the states in the union with regard to COVID 19, but they are the most alarmist. Don't tell me that you are following the science and the data when I know that for a fact. They have had barely any deaths their curve is extremely flat. And it has been for weeks and weeks. But Kate Brown has taken it slow. Think about why that is. Think about it. Is it science and data or is it something else? Is it some other agenda that she has? And also an important finding before we move on. Uh, Between a third and up to one half of COVID deaths are in nursing homes, according to a Washington Post report. So current estimates hold that about a a third of those are have been in nursing homes, but experts and uh, the European experience says that it could end up being more like half. This is drastically underreported by the media. And the fact that there isn't priority universal testing in all nursing homes across the country is a travesty. You put the resources where the risk is greatest. And studies have shown that it is much easier for elderly and sick patients to contract the disease, not just to be hospitalized and or die from it once they have it. So this means COVID-19 spreads like wildfire through nursing homes from one vulnerable host to the next, to the next, to the next. Absolute travesty what we've allowed happen. Half of all deaths is what we can look forward to. Unbelievable. In that sense, it's, it's somewhat good news for the rest of society because they don't have to panic so much about going out and sitting down and having a burger and milkshake. But on the other hand, it shows you how much we have failed our older generations. Incredibly frustrating. Incredibly disappointing. In any case, I want to talk to you for a second about something pretty serious. Um, And that is breaking the rules. Civil disobedience. Millions have been flocking to the California beaches. Gavin Newsom is very frustrated with this, but... It's happened. Beautiful beaches, they are meant to be enjoyed. It's outside, the sand is hot. COVID-19 does not spread in any significant sense in that setting. Nevertheless, gotta shut down the beaches. Thousands are protesting at the capitals across the states. There are more cars on the road. Cell phone data is is saying that in general we're moving more. and And I can tell, I can hear it from my house. There are many more cars passing than than have been passing in recent weeks. You may have heard in Texas, there's this salon owner named Shelly Luther, who has been slapped with a $7,000 fine and seven days in jail for reopening against countywide restrictions. And by the way, opening only a week ahead of when all of the uh, barbershops and salons were supposed to reopen. Just a week ahead of that. $7,000 fine, seven days in jail. Take a listen to uh, this exchange in the courtroom from Fox 4 News. Why did you reopen? Because I had no other choice, because I couldn't feed my family. Your actions were selfish, putting your own interests ahead of those of the community in which you live. That they disrespected the executive orders of the state, the orders of the county, and this city. I have to disagree with you, sir, when when you say that I'm selfish because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision, but I am not going to shut the salon. Many people are uh, asking Governor Greg Abbott to... Pardon, Shelley Luther. Absolutely, he should. Luther is definitely, I think, an example of what other business owners should be doing. Reopening. I've also heard today that there are some businesses in Spokane, Washington, that are just going ahead and and reopening. They're done. Is it time to disobey? Well, I can tell you where I'm at. I'm done. Honestly, I have had family come and visit overnight. We've had family dinner at uh, my husband's side of the family. I went to Lowe's because I needed a couple gardening things. Gardening is non-essential. I went there anyway. The parking lot was packed on Saturday. I have never seen so many cars in that lot, ever. And I've lived here for five years. Most people in the store were, um, were not wearing masks either. There are an awful lot of sheeple who are happy to watch Netflix all day and collect a paycheck. But then there are those of us who see the data, see the curve flattened and or on a downward slant for an extended amount of time, see the studies that have come out about the true fatality rate, like the Stanford study in Santa Clara, of COVID nineteen. See the comparisons to other diseases. And understand that the cure is, in fact, overall worse than the disease. I am happy to social distance at the stores, to give you your space because you're afraid. I am happy to do that for you. I want to be respectful. But as far as voluntary interactions go, I am done. And I think city councils should be petitioned, should be pressured, and council should vote on their own plans to reopen and tell Inslee it is none of their damn business. My city has had, like, one death. Past few days, there has been no new cases. Very low case count here. It's very well under control. But, you know, I noticed when I tweeted the other day that I will not comply is, is now a hashtag already that will autofill if you start typing, like, IWI. That's where I'm at. Bostonians threw tea into a harbor over 250 years ago over paying a tax that they couldn't have representation to vote on. A little tax through probably what is today like hundreds of thousands at least worth of tea into the harbor because they wouldn't put up with not having the representation that was owed to them. Look, if you're listening into a tightly locked down state If you're listening from a tightly locked down state, like Washington or Michigan or New York, you know what I'm talking about. So much more has been stripped from us over a virus that is well under control in most parts of the country and has been for a long time now, including my state, Washington. So much has been taken from us. Yet the residents of our diverse and populous state were denied a representative vote on these cruel restrictions, not being able to see your family, right? Not being able to see your friends, no matter how healthy they are, no matter how much they are willing to risk exposure, not being able to take your kids to the zoo, not being able to have your kids in school and be educated, even though you're spending piles and piles of money in this public education system for your kids to get an education, being, having your job taken away from you, your source of income, your ability, like Shelley said, to feed your family. These are cruelties. This is tyranny. And as a Washingtonian, I vote on many initiatives and referendums every single year. We are one of those states where everything is put up to a vote. There are very few major laws that we do not have some sort of say in either by referendum, Or by initiative. Yet, this virus that did not exceed hospital capacity at here, at at all here, and has been declining all month, can turn a governor into a bona fide dictator that gets to do whatever he wants without the consent of the governed. We couldn't have our representatives convene to vote on our response, to vote on a reopen plan at any point in the last month. Really? Governor Inslee couldn't have called the legislature back, even though they were in recess and said, hey, it's an emergency. You guys need to get your stuff together. Federal government meant, OK, they all worked on the, the CARES Act. As much of a disaster as that is, they all came together and said, this is an emergency. We need to put together a plan and we need to work together and we need to actually have laws, have real policy, not just diktats. The stay-at-home order in my state is being challenged by some GOP legislators. I'm very thankful for that. But let's be realistic. The Supreme Court in my state is very far left. The chances of them winning on the state level are slim to none. But it is unconstitutional. And we didn't have a say in this. And this is tyranny. If we can't have the state legislature stand up for us, it is time for the local authorities to reassert themselves Counties and cities owe it to the constituents to protect their rights and their livelihoods. It is none of Jay Inslee's business if my city, which has had one death, decides to ease into a reopen at a pace that makes sense for our residents, our community. And if the governor has a problem with Eastern Washingtonians exercising their constitutional rights, well, there has been no better time in history for the east and west sides of this state to go their separate ways. There have been people agitating for eastern Washington becoming its separate state for many years now. Many years. And I was never a huge proponent of it. I didn't think it was that realistic. But there has never been a better time because we are not going to put up with this. So as far as that plan goes, I sure as hell would back it now. I know this, this is a lot to take in and a lot to process on a moral level, but I have to be honest with you. I've said from the beginning of this podcast, I'm going to be honest with you. And with the the breakdown podcast that I'm, I'm starting now, same rules apply. These incredible restrictions on our liberties are no longer necessary. And not only that, they were taken away from us without our consent. People have revolted over far less. And I want a peaceful resolution to this situation. I do not want to see bloodshed. That is the last thing that we need right now. But there are ways to disobey in a peaceful fashion. Opening businesses, going and visiting the people that you want to visit as long as they want to visit you. Opening churches, having Bible study. These are all things that we can do now, that are peaceful, that send the message that we have had enough, that these are our rights and you do not have the right to take away our livelihoods, to take away the rest of our lives, to completely break apart our community and keep everybody at home. This is not okay. (sighs) Okay. I was going to talk about interview highlights because I was very excited about the last episode that I did with Sam Storms, where we talk about his flip from being a premillennialist. Of course, we're branching, we're going deep into uh, Christian doctrine here, but from being a a premillennialist in terms of end times doctrine and uh, becoming an amillennialist. Big differences there. He does a great job explaining it. He's a theologian. He knows his stuff. He's an author. He wrote an entire book about it. It's called The Amillennial Alternative but I really highly suggest that you go listen to that. If you are a Christian or you're interested in Christian theology, and probably there's a good chance if you're listening to this podcast that you're a Christian and if you're American, you're probably uh, pre-millennial and you may not fully understand what all, what these other positions are about amillennial millennial, post-millennial. You may have been told some things about them, um, That may or may not be true. And so it is a a great thing to listen to, whatever side of the debate you're on. Very informative. I tried to ask really good questions, to ask relevant questions, questions about the state of Israel and things like that. So, really, you should go listen to it. It's one of my favorite episodes. And I am pleased to say that I will have him back on the podcast to talk about a different subject. In any case, we're just gonna move right along to the the woke of the week and uh, talk about some some responses to the Tara Reid allegations. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke? Okay. Okay. Well, Linda Hirschman over at the New York Times says that you should believe Tara Reid, but you should vote for Joe Biden anyway. Oh yeah. Yep, it's a brain twister. So I'm going to read to you what is essentially the entirety of her argument, even though the piece is four times longer than this. And uh, you can make up your mind when you think about it. She says, suck it up and make the utilitarian bargain. All major Democratic Party figures have indicated they're not budging on the presumptive nominee and the transaction costs of replacing him would be suicidal. Barring some miracle, it's going to be Mr. Biden. So what is the greatest good or the greatest harm? Mr. Biden and the Democrats he may carry with him into government are likely to do more good for women and the nation than his competition. The worst president in the history of the republic. Compared with the good Mr. Biden can do, the cost of dismissing Tara Reid and worse, weakening the voices of future survivors is worth it. And don't call me an amoral realist. Utilitarianism is not a moral abdication. It is a moral stance. Okay, Linda, here's the thing. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. I bet if I went through your Twitter account and I went back a few years to when we were talking about not just, okay, not just the president, okay? Not just the allegations against him. Not just the... the the tape in which he says some very gross things about sexual assault that he basically admits to. Not talking about that. Remember Roy Moore? Remember when everybody and their mother was saying that you can't vote for Roy Moore because he has been credibly accused by several different women for being creepy and or assaulting them? Uh, assaulting them as they were teenagers and boy if you vote for Roy Moore you've really lost the moral high ground And by the way I strongly came out against Roy Moore I wrote an article saying that character matters that you can't relent that there is too much evidence against him to put this kind of guy in the most powerful um, legislature in the world And I'm glad he lost, and I don't regret anything I said during that time. But boy, the hypocrisy here. Wow. Talk about losing the moral high ground. Both Trump and Roy Moore were said to be unfit for office because of those allegations. And that's immediately disqualifying, right? Disqualifying. Oh, but when it comes to Democratic figure, then it's not disqualifying. Then you get to weigh it against the good he would do. Oh, but Republicans weren't allowed to to weigh the good against the allegations. They weren't allowed to do that. And they definitely weren't allowed to do that with Kavanaugh because, so you know, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, he, that is just way too important of a position for Democrats and the far left to relent and let Republicans have. So any and all... Allegations, no matter how flimsy, including um, allegations of gang rape that were completely 100% unsubstantiated, those are totally disqualifying. I mean, you can't have somebody like that sitting in the highest court of the land. Oh, but Mr. Biden comes along, who we all know likes to rub shoulders and smell people's hair and give them kisses and just generally be way overly affectionate to the point of making people uncomfortable and many many women have said this that guy then it's a choice then it's a choice between how much good could he do versus oh he did this bad thing and i believe tara Reid. is it disqualifying to have been credibly accused as is the terminology that people use these days is it disqualifying or is it not disqualifying make up your mind but this is the woke thing. The woke thing is to sell out what you previously said were your principles so that you can vote for somebody who believes uh, abortion should be basically completely unregulated. Anything for women's rights, right? Unbelievable. I'm never going to trust anything, any of these people who are supporting Joe Biden and believing Tara Reed, never going to trust anything they have to say on moral issues ever again ever. The 180 Cast will return next week with another interview, Lord willing. The following Friday, I hope to have all the ducks in a row for soft launching the Breakdown podcast, again called the Breakdown with Georgie Borman tentatively, on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And I will post the link on Twitter, so follow me there at Georgie underscore Borman. That's G-E-O-R-G-I underscore B-O-O-R-M-A-N. If you want to be among the first to listen to the inaugural episode on this podcast, of course, we will still be doing the flip phone. Call or text the flip phone at 323 1802. I do still want to hear everything that you have to say, all of your thoughts on the interviews that we do, your own 180 stories you can flip out. Try to flip my position on something that you heard me say during one of the interviews. Or just tell me about your own flip-flop. Or just really go at it with what you think one of the guests said. It's it's up to you. 323-999-1802. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Where I sporadically post sound bites and teasers from the episodes. Give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it. And please do the same for The Breakdown with Georgie Borman. When uh, I start that podcast, after its inaugural episode, that would mean so, so much to me. It is so helpful to have reviews. So if you have just a minute to do that, I would be eternally grateful. And of course, as I say, you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. I speak my mind on a variety of topics there, mostly about lockdowns these days and uh, about the numbers and debunking some of the lies and the propaganda, stuff like that. I'm a senior contributor at The Federalist as well and uh, am also contributing to the post-millennial on occasion on more lifestyle, sort of zingy, punchy, short pieces like that. So until next time... Seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of the struggle or let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to in the be. middle of the struggle or let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got in the middle be. of Acceptive producer Lord, of Kevin Nicola. Music by Ricky Craft. need, who have got in the be. middle of the struggle Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.